0: Let's turn to the Gospel of John. Some people were thinking I had made a mistake and misspelled the word show. But that's just King James English, as you'll see in the text in just a moment. Jesus is just hours away from being arrested and uh, taken and tried unjustly and then beaten, taken to Pontius Pilate, and then beaten again before having a cross being laid upon his back to carry through the streets of Jerusalem until he reaches a place called Golgotha, the hill of the skull, where he would die as the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. So we are still looking at a section of Scripture that finds Jesus in his most intimate place with his disciples, and uh, while it was only a few hours for us, it'll be a few days to go through chapters 13, which we've already been through, and. And now in chapter 14, all the way through parts of chapter 18, all one night. And that uh, gives us an indication of how significant the things are that Jesus is saying to his disciples. And this is why we're not running through them as fast as we can. But taking our time to realize that each one of the things that Jesus says to his disciples is for us as well. And so I wanna begin by reading in verse five that uh, brings us into the section that we're gonna be studying today which is verses eight through 14. But I begin at verse five because of Thomas's question that we studied last time, Jesus' response to the question with the response, of course, being the fact that he is the way, the truth and the life and using the statement I am to indicate that he is God in the flesh who has come to be the way, the truth, and the life for us and to lead us to the Father. But then comes another response from another disciple, Philip. And we'll read what Philip says in a moment. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. And how can we know the way? Because Jesus had made it very clear, you know, the, you know where I'm going and you know the way. But as we said, Thomas was one who did not want to be a hypocrite and he didn't want to be one who pretended to know. So he said, I don't know the way. So how can we know the way? And Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And then he says, if you had known me. Now get this. Remember, everything that Jesus says from here on is very clear to his disciples. If you had known me. You should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. And Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. <laughs> Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Father, we ask for your wisdom and understanding this morning as we come now to study your word. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and grant us, Lord, the understanding now in Jesus' name. Amen. Much can be said of Christ's love for his own, his own being, of course, his disciples and us. Who believe and trust in him. But much can be said of Christ's love for his own by his answer to Thomas's question How can we know the way? In verse 7, Jesus made it clear that if anyone wants to see exactly who God is and what God is like, all he need do is look at him, look at Jesus. He is definitely and completely the perfect revelation of God and the supreme revelation of what we know as the God of love. Now you might say, well, isn't God a God of a lot of things? Yeah, well, he's, he is. The Bible makes, us very, it makes it very clear that God is a God who is holy, holy, holy. God is righteous, just, true, awesome in all of his ways. There's so many different names and, so, and, and, and attributes that are attributed to God. But why do I focus on the fact that he is that perfect revelation, that Jesus is the perfect revelation and supreme revelation of what we know of God as being the God of love? Well, because first of all, listen to what we read and and hear and should know and should memorize in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or we should consider what John writes in his first letter to the church in 1 John 2, verses three through six. Now I want you to pay close attention to the words that he uses because it ties back to the text that we're looking at today. But John writes because John had been there when Thomas had asked Jesus question and when, when, when Philip had responded with his own statement. So listen to what John says. He says, and hereby we do know that we know him. Hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments, he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoso keepeth his word, in him, verily, is the love of God perfected. Now, do you remember, before we go on here, do you remember going all the way back to chapter 13, the very beginning of that chapter, when they were gathering together for the Passover supper, that it talks about Jesus and his love for his own, that he loved them to the end. Remember that. Keep that in mind. So it says that in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. That's how we know that we're in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. And there was Jesus walking before them. And he said, Follow me. Follow me. You go down to chapter four now of first John, beginning at verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another, John says for love is of God and everyone that loveth is born of God. You see, are you walking in the love of God today? Are you walking in the love of Christ today? And this is what he says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love. You want to know what love is? Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, he sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice. For our sins, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now, Notice what he says. John says, no man has seen God at any time. Now remember what he means is we haven't seen God the Father in all of his glory and splendor with the physical eyes that we have. None of us have. Yet John was one who who saw Jesus and touched him and hugged him and felt him and walked with him for three and a half years knowing that he was in fact the exact image of the father yet in flesh perfect as he was no man has seen God at any time then he says if we love one another God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us Just as God dwelt in his Son and was perfected in love in his Son. So then he says, hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. If you go down a few verses to verse 16, John then says, we have known and we have known and believed the love that God has to us. And once again he says, God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Now why this emphasis on the God of love? Because this God of love is bound and assured to reveal the way, the truth, and the life in the most perfect picture possible. (laughs) A God of this magnitude of love would never leave anyone in the dark. He would never leave anyone ever, to be ever and only seeking without finding. And never able to find and to know how. No, in his absolute love, he would show man the way to himself. He would show man the truth about himself. And he would show man the life of and from himself. Be not deceived of those who would tell you that God has chosen some for salvation and he's chosen others for damnation. That's not a biblical principle. It's not a biblical truth. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This battle has continued on and raged on for Hundreds of years. This theology of of, of saying that God has has chosen some for, for salvation, chosen others for damnation. We have to be very careful of these theologies. And it all comes back to the fact that God is a God of love. So Jesus then said, if... You had known me. You should have known my father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. And if Thomas's question wasn't enough to reveal the fact that the disciples as a whole, and in their confusion, didn't fully understand Jesus, then Philip's statement to the Lord was the confirming proof. Because then Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and that, that is suffice a <laughs> it sufficeth. It sufficeth. Us. Just show us the Father. The fact that Philip used this word show lets us know that he wasn't at all satisfied with a purely spiritual approach to God. He just didn't want to hear spiritual platitudes about God. You know, he didn't want to hear just things, you know, that say, well, yeah, there's a God. And then, you know, no, I want to know, I want to see Him. And that's why I say this word is so significant because the word show is the Greek word deignuo. Deignuo means to show literally. I mean, to really show literally God the Father is what he was asking. Show us the Father, literally. Now the word can be used as as figurative as well, but again, it's based on the context. So what Philip was asking is literally show us the Father. Philip wanted something more significant than a path or a way that he could not see. Also, he wasn't at all satisfied with only a spiritual apprehension or understanding or grasp, a grasp of God. He wanted something more substantial than a person that he could not see. Just physically show us the Father Jesus and that will be enough for me. That's enough. That'll satisfy me. That'll suffice him. But to some degree, Philip desired what many people down through the ages before him and even after him wanted. They wanted a very visible and tangible person. A very visible and tangible. What does it mean to be tangible? Something that is touchable. Something that is perceptible. Something that is physical. Something that is concrete. they, They just want something to hold on to. Something that they can see. But this craving or desire is the basis, by the way, for all ritual and ceremonial religion. And that religion of any kind. Let me give you some tangible things that people do in their ritual religious worship systems. We know that there are those today who will go on pilgrimage to Mecca. And there, with many of their own, they walk around counterclockwise around some big uh, square box. The Kaaba they call it. They walk around it, they touch it. They also do other things, they'll go uh, during the Hajj, during their festival to do this, they'll go to other places, they'll go to certain rivers to drink water from them and, and whatnot, because it's tangible, it's something that they are told that they need to do for their salvation, as it were. And then there are others in other religions, for example, others that travel to Wash in the Ganges River in India. India, They go to Wash in a, the dirtiest, one of the dirtiest rivers in all the world. Eh. And still others will crawl. Listen, still others will crawl. They'll go to Rome to crawl up on their knees up something called Pilate's staircase. Tangible, visible, images, statues, even crucifixes to pray directly to. Candles that need to be lit for ceremonial reasons. That have to be lit, not just because you want to light them. I mean, you know. Maybe you want to dis- disinfect a room with a glade candle or something. You know. That's not what we're talking about here. Candles that have to be lit. Ceremonies that need to be observed and followed to the letter. These things are the essence of religious, ritual, religious practices. But the extent of them, folks, the extent of them is pure idolatry when they become the center of your worship. It is the essence, by the way, and though it may seem like strong language, I don't care, it is the essence of demonic, satanic inspired worship. Anything that has to be tangible, that you need to touch, Now, just understand this. Even after the commandments were given at Sinai, what took place in the wilderness? After the commandments, which one of the commandments was, thou shalt not make any graven image. We all know that, right? What took place in the wilderness? Moses, even after he had gone up and received the law from God and brought it to the people, and gave it to the people, and the people said, yes, we can do 10. We can count them on our fingers. And if we don't have fingers, we can count them on our toes. We can always remember them. We can do them. We can do ten. Folks, Adam and Eve couldn't do one. You understand? But God brought the law to them through Moses. And then Moses goes back up to the mountain to be with God. And what happens? Go to Exodus 32. And you look at verse 1, and it says, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron Moses' brother and he and said unto him up make us gods which shall go before us for as for this Moses the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt we want not what has become of him we don't know what's what's happened to him maybe he's dead for all we know so get up make us gods we know that that's one of your crafts let's let's go do those things Make us gods that we can touch. Make us gods that we can see. So the next two verses are about Aaron gathering all the gold and the earrings and everything else to melt them down. And then in verse 4 it says, And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, listen to what the people said, "These, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Not only did they make a graven image which was against the commandment of God, but then they said that image, that thing is what brought us out. That's the way they conceived the God who brought them out of Egypt. Remember what the Lord Jesus said to the woman at the well? John chapter four, verses 23 and 24. He said to her, but the hour cometh. And remember, they were having a discussion about worship. The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. And then he says, God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. the various signs and symbols that are oftentimes used, the cross, the menorah, whatever it might be. They're just little signposts to remind us that they're not to be worshipped. They're not to have anything to do whatsoever with our worship of God, with our love for Jesus Christ, with our service for God, and our service for Christ. Because God is a spirit. And we're to worship him in spirit and in truth. There's something that Peter said and writes in his first letter to the church, very early on in that first letter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he would make this wonderfully inspired statement that should encourage our hearts as believers and worshipers of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. When he says, and I begin in verse 6 for context sake again, so that we can get an idea of what he's he's saying to the church, and he says in verse 6, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season if need be you're in heaviness through manifold temptations that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes though it be tried with fire might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ oh well, that's something we're all waiting for amen so we're you know we're, you're you're going to find that your 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 faith is being tried but it's much more precious than gold and that perishes and all And it's gonna be found that way unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse eight. He says, whom having not seen, speaking of Jesus, whom having not seen you love. Now, that's to those that he's writing to in the church. Peter saw him, right? Peter saw him physically. But now he's speaking to a lot of people who never saw Jesus with their own eyes, and he says, whom having not seen you love. And that's speaking to our hearts too because none of us have seen Jesus with our physical eyes. Yet here we were today singing praises unto the Lord, lifting up our voices to him, lifting up our hands to him, rejoicing in the very fact that he has saved us by his work on the cross, by his shed blood, by his conquering sin and death, by rising again from the, from the grave. And we rejoice and we love him. We haven't seen him. Think about that. In whom though now you see him not yet believing. there are People in this world today are trying to get you to think, you don't have to believe in Jesus. I mean, I never saw him anyway. Why should you believe in Jesus? We believe. Because we know what he's done in our lives. We know what he's done to our hearts. We know what he does on a daily basis to remind us of how great and awesome he is. You rejoice, he says, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the goal of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So with those things in mind, Philip is rebuked by Jesus for demanding some further representation or revelation of the Father. But hadn't Jesus already done that? Of course he had. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But consider that John recorded that expression, the father or my father. He recorded, John had recorded it 156 times in the gospel. 156 times. The father or my father. And Jesus showed the depth of his father's love and compassion and comfort many times over. Time and again, in the very presence and eyesight of his disciples, Jesus demonstrated the very nature and character and substance and perfection and profound wisdom of the God they had only known as the God of creation, Elohim, the God of covenant, Yahweh, and the God of command, Adonai, Lord. But he says to them, the Father, my Father. All they had to do was look at Jesus to see and to know the Father. So Jesus said unto Philip, verse 9, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? Now he addresses him individually first. He that has seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? How can you say that? Then he says, Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Still speaking to Philip. Philip. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. But the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Or else, believe me for the very works sake. Now while Jesus is not the same person as God the Father, because we believe that there are three distinct persons that make up the one true God. But while Jesus is not the same person as God the Father, nevertheless, He has the same perfect nature. He has the same perfect nature as the Father. Jesus Christ is not just the Son of God, Jesus Christ is God the Son. Therefore, the person who has seen Jesus Christ has seen the Father in all the fullness of the Father's nature. If we can sum it up in two words, it is this. Well, there's more than two words, but two thoughts perfect love and perfect righteousness. All summed up in Jesus, Jesus summing up the nature of the Father. Perfect love, perfect righteousness. The Apostle Paul actually puts it this way. He says in Colossians 2, verses six through nine, and again, this is for context sake, because verse nine is what we want to look at, but he says, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Well, that's something that Jesus already said we should do, we should walk in his love, we should walk in in his nature. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, So you're rooted in the Lord, you're being built up in Him, and established in the faith, grounded in the faith, in other words, as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Then Paul says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And then he says, For in Him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Jesus Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit, bodily. And so when Jesus answered Thomas's concern about knowing the way, the Lord said to all the disciples, If you had known me, you should have known my Father also because the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Jesus. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Now take note of the the point that Jesus was making in verses 10 through 12. Go back and look at verses 10 through 12. The proof that he was the embodiment of God, that he was the one who came to the earth to reveal God is very clear. God's presence was not only with Jesus, God's God's presence is in Jesus. Don't lose sight of that. God's presence is in Jesus. Jesus himself is God. His person, his being, his nature, his character, his love, his care, his just dealings. All that he was revealed exactly what God is. Jesus in his life would never contradict the nature and the character and the attributes of his Father. That was his perfect righteousness, expressing his perfect love. So what a powerful question Jesus asked Philip then when he says, believest thou not? that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me after all that I've done, after all that I've said, after all that I've showed you? Now listen, go back to what Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 10. Because remember this, they were all together. It doesn't tell us that, you know, uh, we only have a quorum here. We only have 10 of the 12 here, so today, you know, we'll just, we're not, we don't have Thomas with us. We don't have Philip with us. No, 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 they're all together. They never left Jesus, except whenever he would send them out to do other things, but then they would come back right away to him. Or he'd just set them on a boat, and he'd be walking on, you know, uh, speaking with his father in prayer, and then they're in the boat going, ah, because they're, you know, going through all their storms. No, are they were. they In this particular case, they were with Jesus, all of them. Thomas and Philip together. In John 10, verses 37 and 38, listen to what Jesus said. If I do not the works of my Father, if I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. In other words, if I don't do the works of the Father, then don't believe me. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. You cannot deny the works that Jesus Christ did. I mean, take, uh, take for example the scribes and the Pharisees and, the, and, and all of those that, that went and saw the things that Jesus did and what did they do? They only turned to the law and said, well, he's, he's blaspheming, he's doing this, he's doing that, he's blaspheming because he's, he's healing on the, on the Sabbath day, he's breaking the Sabbath law. All they did was look at the law, and they did not look at the things that Jesus did, which would have let them know clearly that he was, in fact, the Messiah, God in him, and he was God. But The Lord wasn't content in leaving all of this just in the realm of his father and himself. He purposely translates it into the realm of himself and us. The new life that we have in Jesus Christ will be seen in our effective practice. In our practice. Let's go back to verse 12, John 14, verse 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. He's not talking about him and the Father now. He's talking about him and them and us. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Greater works. And you're thinking, wait a minute. Just hold on here. We're going to do greater works than Jesus? But that's what it says. And that's what Jesus said but maybe we better understand what he means. The works that I do shall you do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. I'm gonna go up there, but I'm not gonna leave you alone. I'm interjecting here now. I'm not gonna leave you alone, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit. And I'm gonna send you the promise of the Father. All right, so we know that. Greater works, that's a little hint, okay. So these words now were proven true. The words of Jesus here were proven uh, proven true by the disciples on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 Jews were converted. And who was preaching? Peter, the one who had denied Jesus three times before the cross. Peter, the one who was ashamed before Jesus, at the Sea of Galilee after the Resurrection. Peter who couldn't even look up into the eyes of his own Savior. And Jesus continued to say, Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend to my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And he was there when the Holy Spirit came upon the church or at least came upon the 120 that would become the the very basis of the church of Jesus Christ. All of them Jewish, all of them receiving the Holy Spirit, all of them receiving the promise of the Father. And Peter preaches this tremendous message that brought 3,000, 3,000 Jews, Jews, they were all Jews, to Jesus. Consider that while in his earthly ministry, Jesus rarely went beyond the borders of Israel, but the disciples went everywhere preaching the word. Acts 8 verse 4 says, therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Even about the church of Rome, uh, in Rome, Paul would say this of, of them. In Romans 1 verse 8, he says, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. That would be the known world. They they were speaking of the faith of the the, the church in Rome, the, the people that had come to Christ. You see, Jesus spoke of greater works that the disciples would do. These, of course, were spiritual in nature. We'll best understand it if you'll follow along with me here for just a moment. You see, it is a miracle It is a miracle to open the eyes of a man born blind, just as Jesus did in John chapter nine. It is a miracle to open the eyes of a man born blind. It is a greater miracle. It is a greater miracle to open the eyes of that man's sin-blinded soul so that he could see the beauty that can only be seen in Jesus. that's the greater miracle. We would all agree that it is a greater, uh, well, we would all agree that it is a miracle to cleanse a person of leprosy. Jesus cleansed many lepers in his earthly ministry. It is a miracle. It is a greater miracle to change that sinner, that leper that had been a leper, to change that sinner so that they become pure in heart and mind and life. That's the greater miracle. It is a miracle to raise a person from the dead, just as Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. That's a miracle. It is a greater miracle to bring eternal life to a person that is dead in their trespasses and sins. But understand, none of those things can we do without God doing the work. But we have been raised up To go forth, to trust the Lord, and to believe his word, to preach his word, to pray for the sick, to do all of these things, but more than anything, to lead them to the truth of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world, the greater work yet it isn't saying to us, oh, you'll do the greater work in and of your own power? Come on. No. It's us doing the work, the greater work. But he does the work. And Jesus used himself as the example when he said, if you don't believe me, believe the works because it's the Father who does the work. And the Father's in me and I in him. How much more? The Lord in us and we in him doesn't make us God. But when we are obedient and we go forth and do the things that the Lord wants us to do, we'll see greater works. And Jesus said, hey, greater works will you do. Greater works. Yet he's involved in it from beginning to end, isn't he? So it isn't us. It's still him. Finally, the result of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and having the newness of life in Christ Jesus will be made manifest in our effectual and fervent prayer life. Look at verses 13 and 14 of John 14. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I began... our study today a few times and in the, in the course of the study I, I brought certain scriptures out and I always said I'm reading these things and using extra verses to put this in context so context is really important here because too many people have taken these two verses out of context so that they can say listen you can ask anything of the Lord and he'll give it to you anything you want So we have a lot of people going around saying, see, if we just ask in his name, the Father says, I'll do it, whatever it is. But that's not the truth, is it? Number one, it's not the context. And number two, listen, if we always got everything we wanted, boy, we'd be in trouble, right? So consider then the context of this statement. Jesus has just mentioned to his disciples that they would do greater works. So to enable them to perform these greater miracles and convert souls, Jesus would go to the Father, he would pour forth the abundance of the Holy Spirit at the appointed hour, which of course began at Pentecost, and then baptize his servants with a, the spirit of power for witness. Again, that promise that I said of the Father, and we, we talked about uh, what, what it is that Jesus actually told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. That's the promise of the Father. That's what's going to come. He says, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me. Remember, witnesses is the word martus in the Greek. Martus is the the, uh, basis for the English word martyr. So when we serve the Lord as witnesses, we are serving the Lord with everything that we are, everything that we have, and we will serve him even unto death if that is the case. So he says, you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, at home, in all of Judea, surroundings, and in Samaria, a little further out, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So that's the context. Whatever you ask in my name, in light of the very fact that you're going to go out as witnesses for me, and you're going to do these greater works. Secondly, the key phrase is in my name. We cannot ask things that are incompatible with his name, with what his name represents, and expect him to honor such requests. Simply, prayer in the name of Jesus must be in accord with the Lord's unchanging purpose of bringing glory to his Father. If there is something that would not bring glory to his Father, we shouldn't even ask it. That must be the object of prayer offered in the name of Jesus, not our own comfort or convenience. Always look. Always look in the scriptures for the things that Jesus prayed to his father for. Take time to read the gospels and every time you see Jesus praying and and there's there's a prayer attached to his time of prayer, Look at what he's praying for. Always. And then dig to find out why he prayed for such things. Certainly one of the easiest areas to to do that in is is when he's getting ready to go to the cross and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. There was the, 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 the anguish of soul because The the, the person that Jesus was in the flesh and and, and Jesus, the, the, the Messiah of Israel, there, you know, who had come to do the things that only he could do on our behalf, cries out to God to the point that he sweats drops of blood. He said, but not my will, but thy will be done. Think of his prayer. If anything, that would be the one prayer that should remind us that just praying for anything isn't what it's about. It's praying for that which will bring glory and honor to the Father. Praying in obedience, praying in confidence to the Lord. Can we pray for things? Of course. That's what the word supplication is about. Asking God for the supplication the supply that we need on a daily basis, our daily bread, the things that we have, the things that we need in this life to continue on in the ministry that God has given us as as believers in Jesus Christ. Let your requests be made known to God. There's nothing wrong with asking for those things. But remember this, God knows the motives of your heart. God knows the motives of each and every one of our hearts. So dig to find out why Jesus prayed for such things and then that's when we'll come to to a better understanding of of praying in his name. We've come to this time where we're going to receive uh, the bread and the cup and this would be a good time for us to understand our prayers to be those that we want to lift up to the Lord that we want to lay before his throne of grace so that he might receive honor, praise, praise, and bring glory to his name. Today, we're going to reflect upon these things. Maybe the questions that we've asked, like Thomas asked, Lord, how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. The truth and the life. Well, just show us the Father then. But I've already done that. Philip, I've done that. Now the question is, do you believe? Do you believe? That goes back to us again. Do you believe that when we take this little piece of bread and this little cup, do you believe that they represent the body and blood of Jesus Christ? Just, just symbols to remind us of the great sacrifice that Jesus laid out before his Father on our behalf. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? Do you believe that he bore your sins on the cross? Do you believe that he was buried? Do you believe that three days later, he rose from the dead? Time to let the word be the mirror to our heart. Take those elements today. You know why? Because they're for all of us. They're for sinners. To remember what Jesus Christ did, and then to encourage us to remember between now and the next time we do this, or the next time you have a meal with your family, the next time you sit around and you say, thank you, Lord, for the blessings that you give us. And we are reminded of the greater blessing that Jesus died and rose again.